Hello everyone and welcome to Making Remote Work. Today I'm welcoming Sujin Yang. Sujin is an assistant professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD. Sujin, welcome to Making Remote Work. Thank you, Yulia. Thanks for having me. It's great having you. Before we go into the depth of your research, which is extremely interesting, could you briefly introduce yourself and, of course, the research that you're working on? Sure. So my name is Sujin. Um, I'm from South Korea originally, but I spent a lot of time in the U.S. living and studying there, mostly in Boston for over 10 years. And then um, I've been, for the last six years, I've been at INSEAD in France. Um, and in my research, I study how people work across cultures, maybe unsurprisingly given my background, um, and also how people work across various different kinds of divides. Um, and I'll talk much more about that in just a minute. Perfect. And, and I think this is really, really interesting. But what I found, so you, you sent me some of the research uh, up front. Yeah. And then what I would like to start with is talking really about multicultural teams, right? Mm -hmm. And that that's part of your research. And you found we always talk about the positives of multicultural teams, right? And then we say hey, it's good to have diversity. It's good to have this and this. It will help. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think you discovered and you and previous research as well that it's not only positives, but they come with negatives as well. So could you make an introduction of how multicultural teams work? What are the positives and also what are the negatives of of working in such teams? Sure. So this is um, not just from my research, but there's a lot of research that has looked at the you know the positive and the negative side of multicultural teams. And basically, it's um, you know in a nutshell, what the research finds is that the variance is higher for multicultural teams. So they have the potential to do better, to be more creative, to make better decisions, um, to just be more effective overall. But oftentimes that potential isn't met and they end up you know, doing worse, um, you know, certainly worse than their potential and sometimes even worse than their monocultural or homogenous counterparts. Why, why is that? So both... Um, you know, both the positives and the negatives stem from cultural differences, right? Cultural differences are at once, it's like, you know, we often use the term of, um, in, in the research of this being a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, you have access to diverse resources and different ideas, different information, and that can lead to um, much more effective performance. But on the other hand, at the same time, these differences can stand in the way, because if people have different assumptions about you know, what doing good work looks like or how to collaborate or different behavioral norms. Um, this can end up um, resulting in efficiencies or even conflict. So all of these, um, you know, processes can stand in the way of effective collaboration. Do we know if there's more right now, if we experience more positive than negative, especially because we just tend to put people together and we say, okay, the team is diverse, right. it's going to bring uh, some positives, and we only look at how diverse is the team, and we tend not to consider the negatives, or we don't do anything to mitigate negatives. I work yeah, in HR I think, and I haven't seen anything done Right, on I think this, you're right? right. I think a lot of organizations kind of put diverse teams together and hope for the best. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard to say whether um, they're net you know, negative or positive, but we do know that under different 
conditions, teams can be more or less effective. So that's what my research has looked at. Um, you know, what are the conditions that we can put in place to make it more likely for these diverse teams to succeed? Um, and you know, what are the conditions that actually make it um, less likely for them to reap the benefits of, of cultural diversity? Would you be okay to go into that? Yep. Great. Let's and then we that. will link it to distributed work and remote work yep. and everything else. Okay. Sounds good. So I'm going to share my slides. Are you seeing them? Yeah, perfect. Okay, great. So I want to share um, two streams of research with you today. Um, one about cultural brokerage or working across you know, national cultures, and then another stream, uh, a newer stream of research on temporal brokerage or working across time zones. So as a backdrop to all of this, um, you know, I don't think I need to convince you, Yulia, or probably most of your listeners that collaborations are increasingly taking place across boundaries of various sorts. So, um, you know, I, I've been studying teams that um, work across geographies with, um, with functional diversity, you know, across national cultures, and with temporal dispersion. Today, the studies I'll talk about um, are specifically on these dimensions, but needless to say, all, all of these oftentimes go hand in hand, um, and they, they co-occur together. So before I go into any of the studies in detail, I want to give you just the, you know, the punchline to all of this. And the idea in brief is that um, what I'm finding across many different studies is that when teams work across cultural or temporal divides, some team members emerge as brokers between these divides and they facilitate the interaction uh, between other members in the team. And you know, this isn't a formal role that they're given. Um, but it just sort of ends up emerging over time as a function of you know, either what they know or their position, um, and I'll talk much more about that later. Uh, when it comes to cultural diversity, I found that people who have more multicultural experience tend to emerge as cultural brokers, and what they do is um, facilitate cross-cultural interactions, and they do that by helping other people work around or work through cultural differences. And again, I'll, I'll talk much more about what I mean by working around and working through in just a bit. And then when it comes to um, time zone differences, I found that those who are more central in a team's temporal network or a time zone network um, emerge as temporal brokers. And given their position in the team's time zone network, they end up coordinating between other subgroups that are more divided in terms of time zones. So both um, types of brokerage, both cultural and temporal brokerage, have important implications for the team as a whole and for the individual brokers. So that's everything I found in a nutshell. Is a broker uh, just a mediator or is it something more than a mediator? It's a great question. Um, they, a big part of their role is to mediate or to help with coordination, but for it, it looks what they're actually doing in that role looks a bit different depending on what kind of brokerage it is and also their specific knowledge vis-a-vis -vis the other members. So I'll, I'll talk more about that. But on the whole, it's about facilitating um, team interactions. Perfect. All understood. Okay. First, I'll start by talking about my research on cultural brokerage. And I define cultural brokerage as the act of facilitating cross-cultural interactions. And this research um, comes from a lot of different studies that I've done over the years, um, 
for the better part of the last decade, actually. And the findings I'll talk about come from um, various different studies, including interviews, um, fields, a field study with observational and survey data, archival data, um, some experimental data I collected. And so um, the questions that I've been addressing in this line of research are who engages in cultural brokerage? How do they do this? So how are they engaging in cultural brokerage? And what effect does cultural brokerage have on team outcomes? Actually team and individual outcomes. So first, um, when it comes to the question of who engages in cultural brokerage, I found across many different studies that actually it's those with relatively high levels of multicultural experience. And this multicultural experience can come from you know, lots of different sources. It can come from living in different countries or working closely with people from different cultures um, or you know, having parents or family members who are from different cultures. But in any case, I found that those with high levels of multicultural experience tend to emerge as cultural brokers, again, without most of the time without being formally appointed. And this is just sort of an emergent role. And high level would mean what? Having spent three years, five years, 10 years in different cultures? How yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, empirically, in terms of the cutoff for, um, you know, for having a high level of multicultural experience, in my studies, I've used a cutoff of four or five years um, because that's, you know, other studies have done and found in the literature that that's usually a good threshold. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, for having been able to immerse yourself in a given culture and learn really about not just about the surface level things, but having had an opportunity to kind of internalize some of the assumptions from that culture and so forth. So, um, so empirically, uh, one way of looking at it is to say, you know, about five years, but it's actually a lot more nuanced and complicated than that. And I think it, it really depends on the person and the situation. So for example, when I um, first moved to the US, I was seven. And I think within a year, I, I spoke enough English to, um, to graduate from ESL and to talk with my classmates and so forth. Um, and on the other hand, I, I moved to France <laughs> six years ago. And um, I'm embarrassed to say even after six years, my level of French is um, very poor. So I can get by in restaurants and the post office and so forth, but it is not even at the level um, of English that I had after a year in the U.S. So I think, you know, that's just an example um, of how, you know, we often use proxies to determine, you know, who has enough multicultural experience. But of course, it really depends on um, how immersed you have case. been. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think another interesting nuance here is that, Sometimes um, the people who have multicultural experience are recognized by others, but sometimes there's a, um, there's a mismatch between who actually has relevant multicultural experience and whether that's, um, you know, whether that's perceived to be the case or not. So, um, and the mismatch can be in both directions. You know, someone might look at me and expect that I know enough about French culture and American culture to, you know, to, um, be a cultural insider to both, but I wouldn't necessarily feel that way. Um, and in other cases, you know, um, you might look at someone who, you know, on the surface is British and not know that they have multicultural experience, but they actually do. So I think there are a lot of different nuances that I haven't been able to look into yet, but I, I, I do think that there's something really interesting about, um, you know, 
how much multicultural experience is enough and you know, is that always recognized as such by the people themselves and, and their team members? But if someone would need to understand what high level is, you look at around five, four years of experience of getting immersed in, that's, in one Yes, one that's the proxy culture. that we use in the literature for, um, for whether someone is multicultural or not. Perfect. Okay. Sorry, that was a long answer to your question. Um, I want to give you a couple of quotes that I got from the interviews that I conducted. So these are interviews with um, executives and managers who have been working across cultures a lot. And when I asked them about their experience um, having engaged in cultural brokerage or, or seen other people um, engaging in cultural brokerage, I got two very different types of answers about what it takes, what kind of multicultural experience it takes to engage in cultural brokerage. So on the one hand, um, many people, actually this is the vast majority of um, the responses I got were close to this. So they said something like, it's like being a translator. You definitely have to understand both cultures and both mentalities in order to build the bridges. Because otherwise, how can you build a bridge? So this specific quote comes from a Russian manager that I, I interviewed. And you know he's talking about how you can't really build the bridge unless you know the two sides. Mm -hmm. So in his case, he was working with um, Russian and American colleagues. He had a great deal of knowledge of both cultures, and so he was able to um, engage in cultural brokerage. So this makes sense, and this wasn't so surprising. But what was much more surprising were these other set of quotes, um, responses that I got that were something like this. This particular quote is from a Venezuelan manager who was working closely with American and Chinese colleagues. And he told me, the fact that I'm not from either culture makes me neutral. And it helps to be culturally agnostic when you interact with a lot of people. So these are almost like polar opposite responses in terms of what kind of multicultural experience is helpful um, for you to engage in cultural brokerage. And you know, I was really intrigued by this and surprised by this because you know, the, the quote on the left is more intuitive. Like I, that's what I would have guessed that you need to know something about the specific cultures that you're brokering between. Um, but actually it was surprising that, you know, there might be something about not knowing anything about the specific cultures, you know, having multicultural experience. So having this knowledge at a meta level that, you know, cultural differences are important that need to, and, and they need to be managed, but not, really knowing much about the specific cultures. Um, so I'm gonna talk about these groups of people. Um, so I'll, I'll label them now. The first group I'll call cultural insiders. So these are multicultural team members whose cultural backgrounds overlap with those of their team members. So for example, like a, a Russian American in a team with Russian and American team members. And then this other group I'll call cultural outsiders. So again, these are still people with multicultural experience, but um, their cultural experience and knowledge doesn't overlap with their team members. Okay, so now onto the next question of how do these different um, groups of people engage in cultural brokerage? I found that these different groups engage in different types of cultural brokerage. So cultural insiders, helped people work around cultural differences. And what I mean by that is, you know, they're helping other people work um, as closely to what they would do in their own cultures as possible. And so without updating their way of interacting, without updating their knowledge or assumptions, um, 
And the cultural broker would act as a go-between or a bridge to help them um, work together across differences. So here's an example of someone, this is a Swiss manager telling me about how he's um, acting as a cultural linguistic broker in this case. And he said, the German engineer on his team said, was going, uh, uh. So I said, okay, tell me in German. And I translated. So he could talk to me in German and I would say, listen guys, I'm gonna quickly translate. And I would take his insecure words and put them into secure English. So in this case, what he's doing, and it's not always you know, linguistic brokerage, but it's, it's always along these lines, that the cultural broker is doing something to sort of take care of the cultural differences so that the other members don't have to deal with the difference. Right? So if he's translating what the German engineer is saying into English for the other team members, then neither you know, the engineer nor the team members need to learn each other's language. They don't need to really update their way of interacting or um, their understanding of one another because this person, the cultural broker, is, you know, is building the bridge. Care. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And he's taking care of it on their behalf. Um, on the other hand, you know, you can imagine cultural outsiders won't be able to help in this particular way because they don't have the specific knowledge. And what I found was that actually cultural outsiders um, did engage in cultural brokerage, but they did that by helping others work through cultural differences. So an example of working through is this is a Mexican manager telling me about um, how he's helping his, um, his colleagues understand each other better. So he says, you first explain, then you have to explain back, and then you have to remind people somebody has to explain to you the differences because otherwise you create your parody about the other side. These guys are like this, they're bad, or these guys are lazy. Somebody has to explain the cultural stuff that there are differences and how to deal with them. So this is a very different you know, flavor of cultural brokerage because instead of just taking care of the cultural stuff and making it so that you know the other members can carry on as they would in their own cultures, he's helping them update their knowledge about the other side, maybe their assumptions. And so, you know, this kind of cultural brokerage over time um, has the potential of helping people work together directly with one another. Whereas, um, you know, working around cultural differences, you kind of always need the cultural broker to be the bridge in between um, because it's more of a band-aid solution. It's not as in it's a temporary solution, it's not fundamentally changing the, the other team members' knowledge or assumptions or values or anything or behaviors. Interesting. And then I think the burden is on the on the first, uh, on cultural insiders, the burden is on that particular person mm -hmm. who's building the bridge. Whereas uh, in the other case, on cultural outsiders, it sounds like everyone bears the burden, right? Right, the, absolutely. The the way I understand yeah. it is uh, the mediator, the broker would, would ask them, okay, so explain what you mean. Okay, how do you do this in your culture? How do you do this in, in, in what, what's your way of solving mm -hmm. this situation? And everyone gets to the same, at the same level. So everyone participates, whereas the other one feels like they are more involved. Yes, I think that's a really important insight um, because... Um, so I haven't been able to ask people directly which they would prefer, mm -hmm. but just um, in terms of, well, have I? I guess there are some anecdotal data that I have, but I haven't been able to qual quantitatively test this. But my hunch is that people um, would prefer, most people would prefer to have a cultural insider help them. And most people would prefer to be helped to work around cultural differences 
um, because it's more efficient and it's asking less of them. They don't yeah. have as much of a burden. Right? It's easier. Exactly as you said. Yes, it's easier for the other team members. Whereas it's more, you know, working through cultural differences means you're engaging in some amount of, you know, and it can often be painful or frustrating to actually engage with the other side and, and update your, you know, your mental model or your assumptions. That, that's not easy. Um, so there is a cost Right. There's a cost that all team members need to bear um, when they're working through cultural differences, whereas the cost or the burden um, of helping others work around cultural differences is just with the, the cultural broker. But then on the long run, mm -hmm. doesn't it beg the question if the gain is not bigger with the work through because then you get yeah. all members learning about the other cultures and it might mm -hmm. be two or three different cultures and incorporating that into their thinking. And then maybe it takes them a, wee, a year to learn this, but afterwards everyone would have this knowledge. Whereas- Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. I, I would love to have, I don't have um, data that are long-term enough to have tested this empirically, but um, you know, I bet anything that that's exactly what would happen, that if you had a team or an organization where people were being helped to work through cultural differences, um, they're going to do better and better over time because they're less dependent on you know, that one cultural broker or the set of cultural brokers to take care of things for them all the time. Um, whereas if people are constantly just helped to work around cultural differences in the long term, um, you know, their performance would even if it doesn't suffer, it would plateau and it wouldn't really inc increase beyond a certain point. Um, I do have, I think we're getting to talking about the effects of cultural brokerage. So I don't have the, the short versus long term, but I do have um, more nuanced findings when it comes to people who work across cultures a lot versus less so. So let me get to that. Mm -hmm. So to what effect, you know, how does cultural um, brokerage affect outcomes of interest? You know, why does any of this matter? So two dimensions that I've been looking at in particular are performance, both at the team and individual level and attrition and whether people stay in the organization or leave. So starting with performance, um, first of all, in um, an experimental study, I found that both types of cultural brokerage enhanced team performance. So the more you have people engaging in working around cultural differences or working through cultural differences, they both enhance performance. But relatively speaking, um, working around cultural differences had a stronger positive effect on team outcomes. And so if you think about this particular experiment, it was one where I brought together people from different cultures to work on an online platform together for about half an hour. So very short term, right? So it's unsurprising that, you know, working around cultural differences had the stronger positive effect. Um, but I also have data from a field study where um, we were looking at a company that is working, um, a company based in North and South America um, in three different countries. And the, you know, the employees have to work across cultures, most of them on a pretty regular basis. So this is um, research that I'm doing with Noah Askin at NCAD and Yulia Mel at Rotterdam School of Management. And what we found is that, um, this is a bit nuanced, so I want to make sure I communicate this clearly. What we find is that the more you work across cultures, so if you're someone whose work requires you to work with you know, people from other cultures a lot, 
um, the better it is for your performance to have other people help you work through cultural differences. So that, you know, that's what we predicted because as you said with, um, you know, long-term performance, if you're someone who's, you know, doing a lot of cross-cultural work in your day-to-day -day work life, then it makes sense that it would um, help you to invest in actually, you know, learning about the other side and then your performance would be enhanced. Um, the more surprising part was actually that we found that the more um, you work across cultures, the worse it was for your performance to have people around you who are helping you work around cultural differences. So it wasn't just neutral, but it was worse for your performance. And we didn't predict this, but how we're making sense of it is that, um, you know, if you're someone who constantly needs to work across cultures, but um, you just have people around you who are helping you translate with, yeah, exactly. And with, by offering temporary solutions, then, you know, they're also robbing you of the opportunity to learn and to really um, be able to work directly with the other side. And so your performance ends up suffering. So that's, those are the findings that I have around performance. Um, and then when it comes to attrition, um, this also comes from the same field study. And what we found was that, and this is just looking at people who decide to leave, um, not the people who were fired. So it's a different dimension from performance. Um, and what we find is that, again, the more um, your work requires you to work across cultures, um, the more you have people around you who are helping you work through cultural differences, the less likely you are to leave. So we do find big benefits of helping people work through cultural differences, um, both in terms of you know, performance, especially when, when the people have to work across um, cultures a lot, and also you know, reducing um, the likelihood that people leave the organization. But I think this is really interesting when you put it together with what you mentioned before about where the burden lies. And I think that in a lot of organizations, um, you know, if they think about cultural brokerage, which is a big if, right? I think a lot of organiza organizations aren't um, actively thinking about this. This is just something that happens to emerge um, in teams and in organizations, but they're usually not um, supported or you know put in place top down. But if they're thinking about it, I um, it tends to be um, thinking mostly about cultural insiders and putting cultural insiders in teams who can help other people work around differences. And I think what's less intuitive um, is the value of having cultural outsiders who have multicultural experience, but who aren't able to help the teams by just solving problems on their behalf and acting as a bridge. So then they need to help by um, helping the team members work through differences. And that ends up having um, a lot of important benefits. So let me ask you some practical information. If someone mm -hmm. is thinking right now um, to build teams which are culturally diverse, right? Mm -hmm. And then they are seeing this, this information. How many insiders and outsiders should they have? How, how does it, how, do, is oh, there a number? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. I have some data on this actually from the archival um, study that I mentioned. So um, I have data from... I think a few thousand student um, global student teams and I was looking at the composition of these teams and what I found was that actually it doesn't matter how many um, how many of these multicultural team members you have one is enough 
Like you, I mean, there is, um, as in there's a big difference between teams that have no multicultural members and even one multicultural member, because it's not that the benefits of having these multicultural members um, are additive. Like, you know, the more you have, um, the better it is. The benefits of having um, multicultural members are not just that, you know, these members contribute directly to team performance, but they're kind of acting as catalysts and they're helping other members work together more effectively. And so, of course, you know, if you do have a team, if you have a luxury of having, you know, everybody on the team um, have multicultural experience, then I would guess based on my research that things would go more smoothly because everybody already knows um, at least has meta level understanding that cultural differences are important. They're not just something you can check at the door and, you know, if leveraged well, they can really benefit um, team performance and, and learning of team members. Um, but in most organizations, you don't have that luxury. And I would, you know, even if, um, even if you can just have one person on the team who has multicultural experience, I would argue that that um, really helps team performance much more than if, if a team were only made of monocultural team members. And um, to add to that, I also have some um, just anecdotal evidence from my interviews where um, some of my interviewees were telling me that, you know, I could have been a cultural broker in this context, but I really felt like I wasn't able to engage in cultural brokerage because of the politics of the situation or because my organization believed that you know, um, there was this big assumption that cultural differences were not important. And so it felt like I would be wasting people's time to even talk about this. So I think the context matters a lot. And if you, um, you know, it's not just about assembling teams and getting the right people on the team, but also then enabling the people who have the potential to emerge as cultural brokers to, um, to you know, be able to emerge and do their work. So I think one, one important thing is also to, to recognize that people have maybe been and, and been involved in different cultures, right? Because usually, right, right. I'm, I'm usually thought of as, as Romanian. No one thinks that I lived in France and then I, I, I'm living in the Netherlands and then I spent mm -hmm. some time in Asia, right? So I pretty much we are defined by our nationality, not necessarily by, by the different cultures right. in which we lived, right? So I think first that needs to be recognized and somehow recorded somewhere. So HR or team leaders would know this. And then... Right. I, yeah, I think that's a wonderful point. And I think I kind of even skipped over that. But yes, I think that that's absolutely the right place to start because you're right that we often just, you know, we know um, people's nationalities and maybe where people went to school or where they worked, but we don't really have an understanding of, um, you know, it, within an organization, um, like a, a really good bird's eye view of who is familiar with what culture. So I think the first step would be to collect that information, to recognize the cultural diversity that exists within individuals and not just within teams or within organizations. Now, another question, would, would you recommend that these cultural brokers uh, be officially appointed? And then mm -hmm. the, whole, the, the whole team knows that, hey, they are the bridge because they have witnessed both cultures or, or multiple cultures right. and they can be the supporters. And, mm -hmm. 
and then I'll ask the other question. <laughs> okay, that's a, well, that's a great question. I I'm tempted to say yes, but I I think um, the caveat is that you know a lot of times because human beings are complex. And, and then, you know, systems of human beings are even more complex and unpredictable. A lot of times, you know, we intend one thing, but it ends up backfiring. So I, I'm just wary of um, potential ways that this could backfire. But, but I do think it's important, um, whether they're formally appointed or not, to um, give some amount of power or control to, to these individuals who are um, potentially able to engage in cultural brokerage. Um, and I think maybe even more important than formal appointment is just the culture of the organization and, and the context and kind of the, the unspoken attitudes or assumptions about cultural differences, whether they matter at all, um, you know, whether they um, are just something that is thought of as getting in the way or whether they're seen as um, a source of, of, of learning and development. Um, there's a great... Um, piece of research that I, I really like um, by Robin Ely and David Thomas. And these are researchers at Harvard. And what they found was that different teams have different um, sort of unspoken assumptions about why diversity matters. So um, a team or organization can you know, think that diversity is important for lots of different reasons. So in some teams, the assumption is that diversity is good because we want to be fair and we don't want to discriminate. And in other teams, the assumption is that um, diversity is good because it gives us access to different markets and legitimacy in these different markets. And then a third way of thinking about diversity and why it's important is that it's good because it allows people to um, learn from each other and integrate their views and, and to come up with something that's more than just the sum of the parts. And what they found was that, you know, these different diversity mindsets um, really shape the performance of the organization and how people think about, you know, whether um, cultural diversity is a source of, you know, potential, um, you know, negative performance, like we talked about um, in the beginning yeah. of our conversation, or whether they can be leveraged for something better. So I think the, the context um, that surrounds the team, or maybe even just, you know, the microculture of the team itself is a powerful driver. All do, of this. do you know if there's any training existing on on cultural brokerage so the people who are either cultural insiders or outsiders mm -hmm. could be trained on what kind of mechanisms to, to use like working around or working through and how that works right and how they could support their teams mm -hmm. there's not any training that i know of this okay. is all um i think it's actually quite um, all of this is quite new in terms of, in terms of just our knowledge, I guess, at a, at a broader level of, of all of this, because I, it's not new in the sense that I'm sure that people have been doing this for a very long time, but um, it's new to the literature because um, the assumption until very recently was that um, and this goes back to your point about how we tend to assume that people are, you know, each person is from a single culture or just, you know, the culture that corresponds to their passport. But there was a lot of research on diversity within teams, but we didn't look at you know, also diversity within individuals and how individuals that within themselves had some cultural diversity might play a special role in teams. So 
given the novelty of our understanding um, from an academic perspective of this phenomenon and also um, also in terms of you know um, managerial practice I think people were doing this but they weren't thinking of it as a big role so I've, I've heard um, since I published this work I've heard back from many people saying you know thank you for giving what I've been doing for decades a name <laughs> because I've been doing this but not really thinking of it as a formal role so I there's not any training that I know of but you know I do think it is something that it might be um, useful considering the positive right, effects, right, right, and the significant performance and creativity increases mm -hmm. that you can get out of uh, out mm -hmm. of this, and that it can be learned. Especially, yeah. I'm thinking, um, work helping people work through cultural differences because it doesn't require this knowledge of the specific cultures. But if you could help even monocultural team members or leaders, you know, engage in cultural brokerage by working through cultural differences, I think that would be, um, yeah. yeah, that would be really helpful for teams. I imagine, but I just imagine that there's no difference if the team is remote or working in, right, usually it can be remote as well, right? It, it right. would apply to remote distributed teams as well. Yes, yes. So in some cases, actually in most of, in most of the data that I have, the teams are not only working across cultural differences, but also um, working virtually. But, you know, the same... Um, you know, the same processes, the same dynamics would be at work um, for in-person teams. I, I do think that, you know, adding another layer of um, diversity, so like geographic dispersion on top of cultural, di um, cultural diversity adds more complexity. But um, when we just look at the cultural dimension, you know, I think the same um, basic factors would come into play regardless of whether the team is working in person or virtually. And then one more question that I have on this. Would mm -hmm. this apply to knowledge and function as well? So knowledge brokers and function brokers? Yeah. Like people who Great have... Great question. Have, I, I mean, you can. I think you can see it with general managers, right? Because they are able to yep, take yep. on... Right, because then, then they can be like the cultural exactly. insiders to multiple functions. Yeah, so um, actually... I, um, you know, all of this, all of the data I have is specific to, um, to national diversity. But again, um, I, I think it, it, the same can apply to functional diversity or other types of cultures, right? Because, you know, culture in itself, um, you know, culture is just a, a shared set of, you know, norms, assumptions, values, um, and it, it might be shared by a group um, that shares nationality, but it could also be shared by, you know, a group of engineers in a company versus the group of, you know, yep. um, of marketing experts and so forth. So, yes, I, I do think that the same, again, the same basic um, patterns would be found with other types of diversity as well. I've written about it a little bit, so I just, um, may, maybe I'll skip over this one and just for um, in case your listeners want to um, read more about this, because I, I went through all of it in very, um, you know, at a very abstract level, but I've, I've written about this for the Harvard Business Review, um, looking at, you know, um, team creativity. This piece, which I wrote with um, my co-authors and, and wonderful mentors, Tiziana Casharo and Amy Edmondson, um, in this piece, we're talking about functional diversity, actually, and we write about how, you know, what we know about cultural brokerage um, can apply to helping um, people work across different functions within an organization. 
Um, and then for my fellow nerds out there who want to get into the nuts and bolts of the specific studies and how I, you know, um, looked at certain things and how I analyzed all the data, um, that's in this piece in organization science. Would I be? Would it be okay if I provide the links um, when, yes, when we share great. this? Perfect. Perfect. Thanks. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you as well. <laughs> now. Do we move to temporal brokerage? Yes, so that's all I have for cultural brokerage. If you want, we can. I'm happy to talk more about it or answer more questions about it. Or otherwise, I can move on to. Let's uh, let's see how this applies to to temporal. Sure. Okay. So for temporal dispersion, um, you know, going back to the different, you know, dimensions of diversity that we can have in teams and organizations, um, we know less about temporal diversity in teams than we do about the other dimensions. So first of all, it's less studied. Um, and just before I get into this, I want to also recognize my co-authors on this paper. This is, um, this is a newer paper, so we don't have anything published on it yet. But I'm working with my, um, my collaborators and good friends, Yulia Mel at Rotterdam and Zen Chai at ASEC. And we just, for fun, we plotted all the different places where we worked on this paper from different places and time zones. So that's what this map is. Um, so here's what we know about temporal dispersion in teams so far from the existing research. Um, so in a nutshell, a lot of research has found that greater average temporal overlap. So what we mean by temporal overlap um, is more shared working hours between members. So on average, if a team's members have more shared work hours, then it's better for team functioning. Um, there is also some evidence that you know, there might be benefits of being really temporally dispersed so you can work around the clock. And this might, you can imagine, this might be um, especially beneficial for some kinds of work. Um, but that's, that's really it. We, we know about like average overlap and you know, maybe some, um, some evidence that you know, working, being dispersed is, is mostly bad, but maybe has some benefits. Um, what we don't know and what really remains invisible about temporal dispersion teams is that um, you know, the structure of temporal overlap can look very different mm -hmm. from one team to another. And within a given team structure, different individuals occupy different positions in that structure. Um, so before I talk about you know, what these structures look like, um, I want to start off by just addressing the question of why temporal structures matter anyway and why we should take care about them. And they matter because we have different ways of communicating. And you know, based on how much temporal overlap you have with someone else, um, different modes of communicating are more um, easily, you know, more or less easily available to us. So specifically, temporal overlap creates opportunities for synchronous communication. So one example is what we're doing now, like talking over Zoom, um, or just you know hopping on a call or texting someone. This is all communication that happens with pretty frequent back and forth, and uh, this is called synchronous communication. The reason this matters is because engaging in this kind of communication helps people arrive at arrive at a shared mental model and really build a common understanding of something. If I just needed to communicate um, some information to you, then it wouldn't really matter if we're talking on Zoom, um, you know, just for the passage of that information. I could, maybe it would be more accurate if I wrote it to you in an email or, you know, use a different channel. 
but if we're trying to um, arrive at a shared understanding of something, then it's really much more efficient and effective if we engage in synchronous communication. So this is why you know, structures of temporal dispersion matter because you know, some team members will have more opportunities to engage in this kind of communication um, compared to some other members. So to be more specific, um, let's consider this team. Right? We have one member in New York, one in Rio, a third member in Paris, member in um, Singapore, and one member in Tokyo. So if we think about the work hours of these members, um, you can imagine something like this. So assuming a 10-hour workday between 8 and 6, and immediately what you see is um, two different temporal subgroups, right? So the person in New York and the person in Rio share most of their work hours together, and the person in Tokyo and Singapore and the, the other person in Singapore have a lot of overlap as well in their um, work hours, and we'll call this temporal overlap. Meanwhile, what's also what pops out when you look at this um, this visual is that the person in Paris is the only one who overlaps with everyone in the team. And so, you know, this person in Paris, when they wake up, they have some shared work hours with the subgroup in Tokyo and Singapore. And then, you know, around lunchtime and then in the later part of the day, they overlap in their work hours with New York and Rio. So we thought, you know, occupying this kind of position within a temporally dispersed team, um, it, you know, it's a unique position. And we thought there would be specific demands on this position and different outcomes. So that's what we were looking at in this study. So what we specifically, how we looked at um, temporal networks was that we created this just to get a little bit nerdy with you here. Um, just these are the, this is a matrix of pairwise overlapping work hours between every pair of individuals. So for example, if you look at New York in the first row, you can see that it overlaps eight hours with Rio, four hours, four hours with Paris, and zero with Singapore and Tokyo. Um, from this matrix, we can construct a network like this, where each tie, the strength of each tie, um, corresponds to um, the number of overlapping work hours. So this is, um, you know, uh, so far, you know, people have been looking at um, temporal overlap in terms of what's the average um, overlapping work hour between, um, in, you know, between each pair of team members um, within the team. But this is a different way of thinking about temporal overlap to conceptualize it as a network. And if we do this, then we can see that people occupy different positions in this network. And we can see that um, this is a unique position, which we're calling temporal brokerage. And you know, basically it means occupying the most central position in the team's temporal network. So the question that we set out to answer in this um, project was how does being in this position of temporal brokerage shape outcomes for the individuals occupying such a position? And what we find is that, um, and first of all, the data that we're looking at um, are um, one data set, um, they're both two archival data sets. One is looking at over 4,500 individuals in global student teams, and the other data set is looking at over 120,000 individuals in global academic teams. And what we find across these two um, studies is that, first of all, um, temporal brokers are you know, these people who connect temporal subgroups that are otherwise completely disconnected or relatively disconnected in terms of temporal overlap. 
And because they're connecting these relatively you know, disconnected temporal subgroups, this exposes them, being in this position, exposes them to divergent mental models on both sides of the temporal divide. So in the example, you can imagine, you know, the team members in Tokyo and Singapore have a lot of opportunities to engage in synchronous information. Maybe they kind of end up with one sort of mental model, um, whereas the team, the subgroup in New York and Rio have a different, maybe a slightly different understanding or a different mental model. And because they're exposed to these different mental models, it makes it more likely for them to you know, be aware of the need to coordinate between them and ultimately engage in coordination between the subgroups. So would these different mental models, right, and the different uh, decision that they end up with, right, New York, Rio versus Tokyo and, and Singapore, they would be connected to culture as well, right? Because they might yes, be... That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Right, they could be. It could be, okay. um, but not necessarily. Okay. Right, because um, well, North and South America, in terms of cultures, are you know, I mean, it's it's also complicated because even within a country like the U.S., there are a lot of you know different cultural subgroups, but um, it can be the case that so, for example, um, in Japan and Singapore are both. Um, high on collectivism, power distance, you know, compared to the other countries in this team. But it's not always necessarily the case. So, for example, Paris and um, Johannesburg have, like, a lot yep. of temporal overlap, but culturally they'll be quite different. Yeah, so I, I think that's a really interesting line of inquiry to look at how... Um, you know, when you overlay the temporal structure with the cultural element, um, I think there's a lot of interesting questions to be to be explored there. But so far, we're just, this is like the basic first step of can we think about temporal structures in this way? And if we do, can we you know, learn something about how occupying different positions in this network um, lead to different outcomes? Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's sort of like an invisible structure in teams, right? Because um, even though, you know, even though, um, I mean, we do find that it, it impacts team members, but it's not something that you think about necessarily. Even, you know, when it comes to like cultural diversity, I think a lot of leaders or managers or team members would think about, you know, team composition. But when it comes to time zone differences, you don't necessarily think about, okay, where am I going to be sitting within this team's time zone structure and what does that mean for you know my yeah. the role that I might end up taking up yeah so this is what ends up happening if you're in a position like the member in Paris is and by the way in this example this person the temporal broker is in Paris but in our data set we find temporal brokers on every longitude and um, on every continent okay. so you know this is just so one this example this but they're is not more necessarily because they are overlapping mm -hmm. in terms of time and they get the chance to communicate synchronously and reach a common decision, right. which is different than the other group, which, yeah, they just worked through it, through the issues differently. In their um, own time. Say that again? So, so it's, not, it's not mostly cultural, it's just because they had a chance to work through it right. together. And it's right. not five brains coming together. It's two brains yes, two brains. Right. And it's at the end mediated by the one. Okay. Right, exactly. I think this is a, a really important point that um, in the first set of studies I was talking about with national culture or just cultural brokerage, um, it's like holding other factors constant 
Um, and just kind of zooming in on the cultural aspect, you know, what's happening there in terms of, you know, certain members facilitating cross-cultural interactions. Now here, we're holding constant other factors and just zooming in on the temporal aspect. But I, to your earlier question, I, I you know, would guess that if these temporal subgroups also coincided with cultural subgroups, then this would be exacerbated. Okay. Right? Everything that we're finding would be even more so because if you have you know, people who are culturally similar also engaging in a lot of synchronous communication or at least having the opportunity to do that, then you can imagine that you know, the mental model that they would develop would be even you know, more, um, more strongly shared among members of that subgroup and possibly very different from uh, members of the other subgroup. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So then engaging in this coordination work, um, we predicted and and we find that it um, would lead to greater effort in terms of just it's more workload because like I said before, these positions aren't, you know, in a team's temporal network, they're not something that team members are conscious of or that they, you know, opt into knowingly or willingly. So it's not that the person in Paris would be, um, you know, given a little bit less work, taking into consideration that he or she would have to do all this, you know, coordination work on top of what they're doing. But because that's not taken into account, um, uh, it sort of falls into this umbrella of invisible work. You know, work that's necessary and important, but often not recognized. So it's just it, it's a lot more effort. But also on the um, on the positive side, it leads to more cognitive flexibility, and specifically, we find that it in, increases um, people's integrative complexity to be in this role. So specifically, what that means is just um, their capacity to hold together and be able to integrate different um, different mental models and different ideas. So that pretty much in practical terms would mean that if you have this model of working, then the person in Paris should be given a bit more slack, right? So so they have a right. bit more time to make this work and, and broker the relationship between the other zones. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they can also be given a role of an integrator because they would get the shared understanding from each group. Right. So that, that's the positive part of this that ends up happening is that they end up being, um, because of this work that they're doing, you know, coordinating and integrating, they, they, um, their cognitive flexibility is enhanced. But at the same time, they end up, you know, like when you, it's true that they, they should, ideally, they should be given more slack. Mm-hmm. But in most, if not all teams, they're, they're not really. So then all this coordination work comes on top of all the other, you know, formal, quote, quote unquote, formal work that they're supposed to be doing. So it ends up just um, adding to their workload. Um, so what we thought was, okay, this is what's happening within a given project, but people often work on multiple projects. And when we look at the portfolio of different projects that people are working on, we thought being a temporal broker on one project would have spillover effects onto their broader portfolio of projects. So, you know, the more people engage in um you know, the more people engage in coordination work because they're um, in these positions of temporal brokerage, we find that they produce fewer completed projects. So it reduces the quantity of their work, but then the projects that they complete, they're higher in quality. So this maps onto, you know, the enhanced workload because they're working a lot more. They just have less time and less, you know, resources, energy to give to their other projects. But because um, they're also 
gaining something in terms of cognitive flexibility, which could give them better ideas. You know, it could help them um, be more able to, um, you know, put together seemingly different pieces of information or data and come up with something new and novel. So it ends up increasing the quality of their completed projects. So that it's, um, again, it's not that it's just bad or good, but that there are these benefits and um, costs of being in this position. But the, the broader overall message is that there is something happening here with these temporal structures and they've been invisible so far. And actually, you know, other than these specific findings, what we are hoping to say with this study, um, with this paper, um, is just that, you know, this is a different, newer way of looking at temporal dispersion in teams. Mm -hmm. And thinking of um, you know, temporal dispersion as a network um, can tell us something you know, new about the experience of the members in that network and where we're going next. Um, our next um, paper that we're working on is how temporal structures shape team performance. So what you were saying before, Yulia, about um, you know, shouldn't the person in the shouldn't that person, the temporal broker, shouldn't they get more slack? Um, I think if they did, the team as a whole might do better, mm -hmm. right? So things like that, like what are the things that would um, help the team as a whole perform better? So we were interested in, for example, the alignment between team members' positions in the temporal structure and um, and maybe other um, aspects of um, diversity. So for example, like we were talking about before, if we layer on the cultural aspect on top of the temporal one, um, and if we connect cultural brokerage with temporal brokerage, you can imagine if somebody um, who happens to be in a position of temporal brokerage on a team, if they can also be a cultural broker because they have more multicultural experience, that team would probably end up doing better than a team where the cultural broker is, you know, has very few overlapping hours with most members and they're kind of an, an isolate in terms of temporal yeah. overlap. And I can only imagine how this can um, be truly beneficial for companies that are working all remote, right? Mm -hmm. Because they don't even get the chance to see each other. You can solve a lot of the differences uh, uh, if you meet face-to-face, -face, even if yeah. they're cultural or, or yeah, and def definitely temporal. But if if not, it's, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Uh, I have a question, Sujin. Mm -hmm. Did you? work with all remote companies on this kind of researches because I think that would be really nice like uh, GitLab, uh, Envision, Automatic. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of I think there are oh, already you over mean 100. companies that are um, working where everybody is working exactly. remotely? Exactly. Yeah, actually all I think all or most of the data I have come from um, teams where the team members are working remotely, but they're embedded in organizations where they do have some colleagues mm -hmm. they, that they see face to face. It would be really interesting to look at how this plays out in you know companies that are working all remotely, all virtually. Yeah, yeah. Because I, like I said, I think the context also matters a lot. Like we often think about you know when we're doing research, we hold other factors constant and just look at what's happening within the team. But we also know that you know contextual factors shape what's happening within the team um, a great deal. So yeah, I think that would be fascinating to look at, um, you know, companies that are working remotely all the time and, and how that shapes 
their, um, you know, team members' experiences of being temporally and culturally yeah. divided. Because maybe I'm thinking that maybe at the at the very uh, right uh, tested, tried, failed, maybe they already see some of this, but but yeah, there's no uh, research to back them up. I will mm -hmm. ask them. I have a discussion with uh, Mark uh, Frain, who mm -hmm. was working from uh, for Envision, and now he's working for Lambda School. All remote uh, companies, both of them. And then next week with Darren Murt from GitLab. So mm -hmm. I can ask them what uh, what they think about this. Great. Yeah, I'd love to hear their thoughts. I, I don't know because I haven't conducted a lot of, no, I, I've barely conducted any interviews um, with people about temporal dispersion mm -hmm. and temporal brokerage. Um, so yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on whether, you know, how they're thinking about this. And I imagine that some of it will sound familiar to them. Like if, also just talking with, you know, academics who have, um, often we also work across time zones. And um, so when I ask my colleagues about their experience, they, they do recognize that, you know, if they over, have more overlap with um, each of their collaborators and their co collaborators have amongst themselves, then they end up doing a lot of this coordination. But um, yeah, but I wonder if they have other insights. And yeah, sitting in Europe, I would say the same, but the, uh, yeah, it, it would be interesting to see if they have other insights as well. And I think this this kind of research is extremely useful, again, for for uh, companies to so they can support their employees in getting that role more recognized, right? And supporting them with training, with communication, time allocation, mm -hmm. something to to actually recognize that, hey, this is a cultural broker or a time broker and they're adding value to the team by right. doing this and doing this and th this is the positive that they bring. So that's why they have maybe more time allocated to them to, to do this. Right. I think that would be a big takeaway yeah. from all of yeah. this is that I'm finding that this is just, these are emergent roles are not top down, but they are providing value to the team and to the organization. So I think if they can be recognized and supported, um, that would only yeah. help them do their role well, which would help the teams perform better. Thank you so much, Sujin. Is there a question that I didn't ask or something that we didn't discuss and you wanted to touch on? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, this has been a great conversation. It's really, you know, stretched my thinking on this too, because oftentimes I engage with, you know, academic reviewers and colleagues who are asking questions from a certain angle, but you've been asking a lot of, you know, practical questions in terms of like, how does this apply to this or how can managers think about this? So it's, it's been, yeah, it's been a good um, experience for me to engage with my research in that way as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you thank for your you. time today. Thank you for having me.